Hello, everybody, and welcome to a, I would say, very, very special episode of the uh, Eric Lang Show. Jeff, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> I would say, I mean, the, the the person sitting in front of us right now is, I don't know, I mean, uh, a legend and probably in some ways has done more for golf than uh, his years would allow, would you say? Yeah, I mean, how important is Tin Cup to you as a golf movie? Is he, that up there? Caddyshack, Happy Gilmore? Oh, yeah. I mean, so we're sitting here with uh, writer-director Ron Shelton, and um, I guess, but just, just before we get into it, I just really wanted to say, um, I, I don't know if I've ever been this excited for a podcast interview. Wow. Like, literally, I, I think I'm technically I'm sitting in my chair, but there's I'm only on like a, a tenth of it. I'm just I'm on the edge of my seat. I just I have so many things to talk about. And I'm worried that, um, you know, Mr. Shelton is going to need to leave after about four and a half hours. <laughs> have you prepared a long list of questions for him? I mean, the list of questions is more like a spider web inside my brain. It's like it's a labyrinth of questions that just each one gets deeper and deeper. How fascinated are you with Tin Cup? When was the first time you saw it? Well, um, I guess Tin Cup for me, um, you know, obviously I just watched it again. I've seen it several times. I think, you know, one of the great things about films is we can watch them again and again and they don't change, but, but we do and they change for us. And I mean, I guess I want to get into the interview. Let, should, we, should we just start the interview? And then, because and some things I really want to like get into directly yeah let's jump right into it okay so we're, we're muting cell phones uh my phone jeff your phone on mute uh yeah i'm on silent do not disturb All right. ron do you want to do a sound check are you good i'm just happy to be here hope i can help the ball club <laughs> <laughs> i think um i mean i was we were just we recorded for a minute or two before you walked in and we yep. pretended that you were here but you weren't here no because we're in a uh, a public office but what I was saying that I really wished I had said when you were sitting here was just how excited I am to talk to you about this. You know, you've, I, and I, and I propose that perhaps you've done more for golf than, than definitely most people in the world, but, but maybe even just, maybe there's only a handful of people in front of you. <laughs> well, well, it's not hard to do something for golf in the entertainment business because uh, it's a tough sport to sell except to golfers. So, right. But uh, you didn't make tin cup for golfers. Well, I did and I didn't. And I think all of my sports movies, I try to have it both ways. I want the guy with the chip on his shoulders about sports movies to go, okay, he got me. And then I want the person who hates sports to say, he got me too. So, you know, sometimes that's through the woman character, but not necessarily. Rene Russo's character in Indian Cup was uh, flawless. <laughs> well, because Rene is flawless. And, uh, you know, if you can have a run a therapy uh, clinic in West Texas, you can pretty much do anything, I think. Right. Uh, I mean, I just have so many questions. I, I don't even... I guess I'd like to start with the Chip Beck, uh, yeah. the beginnings. I tell you what, but before we even get into that, I've seen Tin Cup five times, maybe not as many as I should have, to be honest. And I watched it again very recently in anticipation of talking to you. And it was different. This time, you know, I've only had a short history of getting into golf. It's only been about seven or eight years. I, I don't know if I'm alone, but I, you got me. Like, I, <laughs> I cried. And I was like, why the fuck am I crying? This is a golf movie. But there was something about it where it just, 
maybe as you get older, you relate to the idea of, well, I guess I need to hear you talk well, about I don't, it. Well, I don't think it's a movie for 25-year-old people, honestly. Are you 25? I'm 37. Okay. Because it is about, you know, not just second chances. In this guy's case, Roy McAvoy, it's, he kind of blew it. Um, you know, it, Roy McAvoy is a guy who had all the talent, but he didn't have the head. And I think Roy is like more people than they'd like to admit. Most people, to, in my mind, are afraid of, not afraid of losing, they're afraid of winning uh, in their lives. Because when you win, with it comes great responsibility yeah. to keep winning, to keep the bar high. Uh, there's a lot of one-time wonder, one-hit wonders. Um, so the, the people in any, you know, whether you're an insurance salesman or an athlete that have long careers or movie business or music business or whatever, writers, uh, if you can keep doing it for decades, I think that's pretty extraordinary. And Roy couldn't do it once right. until he met the woman. <laughs> and he still didn't do it, but he didn't do it in a magnificent way. Right. Yeah, he's just, afraid of winning. He's afraid hit, of winning. It hit me so. I, I got to pull my phone because I wrote down a tremendous amount of notes, and it was funny because in doing my research, like about you know the movie and some of the interviews you've already done and everything, um, what had occurred to me was that idea. Um, this sort of um, does he want to lose? You know what I mean? He doesn't want to lose, but he doesn't understand. That, that winning involves compromise. He thinks that winning is, is no compromise. And, um, you know, every writer has his book edited or movie f you fight with the financiers or, you know, whatever business. You fight with your boss, you fight with the finance, you fight with the bank. Um, and I think sometimes those fights actually make us better and stronger. Uh, left to our own devices and endless time and money, we'd probably screw it up worse than having certain restrictions and boundaries. And, um, you know, without articulating them, that's kind of where he is and where many people are. He's also sort of magnificent in a way because he wants to go for it and uh, he's never gone for it and he's going to go for it till he, if it kills him and it does kill him. You know, speaking about uh, difficulties with work, uh, Tim Cup had some of that with the ending itself, as far as, I'm, as far as I know, from the studio? Well, they wondered why he couldn't win. And, uh, you know, that was after buying the script and starting to, and I was making the movie, you'd think the subject would have come up. Because <laughs> that's the crux of the entire film. That's how you came yeah. up with the idea. And we'll you know, tell how we, this idea came about. But, look, I, 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 would, I remember having this argument outside of screenings with the heads of production after... We were test screening the movie, and they said, well, you know, why can't you recut it so he wins? And I said, to blank faces, I said, well, if Humphrey Bogart walks away with Ingrid Bergman at the end of Casablanca, nobody remembers the movie. And, of course, they looked at me like I was crazy, but I, you know, if, if, if everything worked out for Ten Cup, there's no story. No. And it's also not believable. So um, the only other time I had that, I've used that quote. It's the one time I met Donald Trump, which would have been 1996. We had a premiere in New York, and he came to it. And afterwards at the party, <clears throat> excuse me, the publicist came up and said, Mr. Donald Trump would like to meet you. I said, fine. So he came up to me with his red tie and Marla at the time. And he says, and this is, I don't make up a word of this, which now America knows I'm not making up. He said, Hey, kid, first of all, I'm six months older than you. Uh, 
Hey, kid, let me tell you how you could have made a better movie. That was oh, his boy. opening line. Oh, boy. He says, you can go into the editing room and redo it so he wins. Do yeah. a lot more business. Yeah. Winner, a lot more business. Just like that. I am not changing words. And I started my, thank you, sir, but if Humphrey Bogart walked away with Ingrid Bergman, he's gone already with Marla onto the oh, next yeah. table. Yeah. So that's my, that's my Donald Trump story. <laughs> right. But uh, I, we won that. I mean, audiences love the ending, and uh, it was pretty clear it would have been phony without. So you came up with the idea for the film, uh, which I think is really interesting because, you know, I am uh, I'm embarrassed to say this currently, but I'm a director as well, which is like I, I feel like I shouldn't even attempt to put myself on the same side of the table as you. But, um, you know, I find that as a creative person, whatever you do, some of the most inspiring moments are literally doing the inverse of what you should be doing technically. And so tell me about the inspiration for Tink Up. Well, my writing partner, when I, when I don't go solo, I have one guy I work with, John Norville. And we're also golfing partners and drinking partners and all that. John was a really good golfer. He played at Stanford. That's how good John oh, wow. Norville was. And he lived, but he lives up in Oregon, over the Deschutes River. So, and I live in Southern California. So we're always on the phone. And we played golf over the years saying, how do you do a golf movie? How do you do a golf movie? And there's one thing we knew is that you have to take the sort of the, uh, you have to put the blue collar back in the game because we see all these fancy clubs on Saturday and Sunday on television and the Muirfields and, and the, uh, in England and all that. But, you know, basically it's a lunch bucket game. Even in England, the home of golf, it's a bunch of guys who work for a living going out there. And in this country, you go to public courses where they're standing out in line at five in the morning. We got to bring that back. So we decided if we had a hustler, hustlers were, hustlers were very universal. So let's have a hustler. He's your second hustler you've depicted. Lots of hustlers. Great American <laughs> archetype. White and, man can't jump is what I'm referring to. Thank you. Yeah. And um, a couple others that haven't been made yet. So the hustler is a returning theme. But what happened was we had this idea of a hustler. We loved West Texas. The whole Lee Trevino. It's where you grew up, right? No, my your partner. father my father's from side of the family from West Texas. You spent Texas. time there. No, I spent oh. time. They came out to work in the oil fields of oh. Bakersfield. So that's my Baptist background. But um, so, so we have this idea of Lee Trevino, who will probably look more like Kevin Costner than actually Lee Trevino does. But Lee Trevino was a West Texas hustler. And Titanic Thompson, all these hustlers we loved. So, but we didn't know anything else. And this idea was just languishing there. And he was watching the Masters in Central Oregon, and I was watching it in Ojai, California. And um, Jeb Beck lays up, and I'm on the phone, he's on the phone. He said, that's it. We're going to make a movie about a guy who can't lay up. Was it big news when Chip Beck laid up? Did Jim Nance say, what are you doing? No, but Jim Murray went after him the next day in the LA Times. Really? And said, once in your life, you're in a position to win the opening, you lay up. Now, the truth is an analysis, but we're, we like fiction better here is that it was kind of a funky lie, and you know he, he laid up, and uh, Bernard Langer went for it and hit it over the green. Anyway, the guy who laid up playing it safe made bogey, and Bernard Langer made, you know, made birdie. But he, it, it, the mythic idea of you have one shot, why don't you go for it? Because a birdie or an eagle there might have got him the tournament. And he, an eagle would have been a three, he made a six, it's a three-shot turn. 
So even if you fail, fail gloriously. That was yeah. That was the idea, and so we worked backwards from there. It's almost um, like it, there was. An, I'm telling you, I don't know what it was, but I, I literally, I'm not embarrassed to say, it, like I, I got very close to sobbing, watching Rene Russo say, "Go for it," you know, like even right now as I talk about it, because there's just something about, I guess, age where you learn how scary it is to both go for it and lay up. Like, like both options are scary. And Doreen, the former girlfriend, says that's a problem. He, he, you know, he, he, uh, he, he always went for it. And, and Renee says, I've never been with a man who went for it. So, <laughs> you know. It's incredible. It, it, when, you, when you wrote that scene, were you like, how am I going to shoot this? I knew I'd have to shoot the hell out of it because <clears throat> basically in golf, golf is the hardest sport to shoot. Because it's impossible. And I've shot all the sports because it's basically 150 guys on 150 acres doing exactly the same thing. And if you've ever been to a golf tournament, and I've been to many, I go to the LA one, I've been to the US Open, nobody knows what's going on unless you're home watching on TV. This is why I have the, the TV booth. Well, and you, you've been to the Masters. And I've been, which been, is... I've been in the booth with Frank Tricanian when Wow. Uh, uh, when, uh, he invented... Can you, we just take a Frank Tricanian moment? Can you tell people at home what he did for golf? He's, he's, he's basically invented golf on television, which is to say he invented golf in America uh, along with Arnold Palmer. Was it the scaffolding, or what, what did he actually do? Well, first of all, he, he, he was a very strong-willed director, and he had his team of announcers and, and crew and technicians doing it exactly his way. You never spoke when a swing was being made. You never used these phrases. You always used those phrases. And because he was a golfer, he knew the game, and he had golfers who knew the game. And he took them out to dinner because I, I did, went on the tour with Frank. And twice, two nights of each tour event, he'd take the announcing crew out to dinner and criticize them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you said this instead of that. Right. They loved him. He was known as the Ayatollah affectionately because he Whoa. didn't take crap from anybody. Um, I thought he was great. I invited him to a Hollywood premiere, and he brought his wife, and he didn't like a seat I had for him, so he left. I mean, that was <laughs> no <laughs> way. Yeah, he bailed. Yeah, and I played in some tournaments with him here at Bel Air when he was still around. But, um, yeah, so I don't remember the question, but that answer will do. Um, okay, let's. Uh, I have so many. Uh, well, well, I mean, did you uh, want to go back to the difficulty of shooting golf? No, oh, no, yeah. No, no, well, no. well okay, one okay, thing about okay. shooting golf is you, you have to have a ton of coverage, and for the non- movie people out there, you need lots of angles and sizes of shots to make it not feel, I've just seen that already. So, yeah. so I shot more coverage, and on the, on the final hole where he makes a 12 or 13 or whatever, I shot the sequence over and over and over, and then I shot the whole thing again, and everybody thought we were done with a handheld camera, uh, uh, 35 mil, minimum focus, about 22 inches in that light. That's the final shots. Well, I just followed Kevin. I, I, I redid the whole scene after we'd done every shot. <laughs> just I as just, extra. Just, it wasn't extra. It's, it's, the heart, it's, it's why <clears throat> it's emotional. Because, <clears throat> excuse me, it's, you know, we all look at each other. You're a director in about a 35 to 40 mil lens. Right. That's, that's, when you put a 35 or 40 mil lens on a camera, that's pretty much the way we see the world. Right. So the rest of the angles were all long lens and, and maybe a couple super wide, but nothing was what we see. So at the end of the sequence, I shot the whole thing again on his face, just for his reactions in what we would think of as natural right. optics. What's your favorite? I mean, there are so many um, like bite-sized moments with great dialogue. What, what is your favorite? 
What is your favorite line? I mean, I, I have so many. I don't. I don't. Give no. me the lumber. Another ball, Romeo. Give me the lumber. Yeah. That's Another a ball. good one. Give me the lumber. Yeah. And the the funny thing about Give Me the Ball, Romeo, was it later turned out when Tiger set the record at Pebble Beach that his a lowest total score in a U.S. Open. Yeah. But what was who was his his famous caddy at that time? Stevie. Stevie. Yeah. He he had hit one in the water and he was still up like 14. <laughs> and so for some reason they didn't have another ball in the bag and Steve didn't want to tell his caddy didn't want to tell him. Oh, if no. you hit this in the water, it's over. That was a rule I learned from the movie. Actually, I didn't yeah. realize once you lose the balls that you have, you're yeah, that's why done. the rest of yeah. us take a whole bunch of balls on the. But in the tour, they take two six maybe. Actually, in the film, I noticed that scene where he's out of balls, and then I I, I thought it was a really good job of exposition of going to um, I think it was an announcer who then explained the rule. Yeah, I thought that was really smart. That's why those guys are there, right? <laughs> oh, so it is a structural element. Well, it is because you you can't assume. This is the thing about wanting it both ways, where, you know, where the truth is if you have a shot in that's 173 yards and you're discussing it with your caddy, you don't say 173, you say 73. The, right. the one is assumed. Right. So if, I, if, if Cheech says 73, there's a bunch of people in the audience say, that looks like a lot longer than yeah. 73. So you say 173 and hope the Golf Digest forgives you. Right. That's that's honestly what you have to do. And there's so many abbreviations in that. You know, we've actually have you ever seen any of these like actually this year at the Masters, they uh they released Jordan uh, Jordan Spieth and Michael Greller on 15. Um I'm sorry, no, on 13. They were they were had this entire discussion about what club it was in cuz he's going for it obviously yeah. nowadays golf's a little different, yeah. but but I mean it was this entire discussion about wind and and shape and an immediate ball flight. Yeah. I mean, golfers love that shit. Did you see the, in last week's tournament, Kevin Na and his, and his caddy? Uh, tiebreaker? Oh, I didn't see this. He, had, he was in the rough on like Saturday. Okay. And he had 225 out of the rough to carry water onto a, to reach a par five and two. And it was a really funny exchange. Which club do you think is right? Neither one of those. Let's take this one. No, I'm not hitting that one. And he, and he said, that's too much. And he flew the green. Then he made an impossible chip in for Eagle from about 60 yards. So he said, see, I was right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he's a very charismatic player. I like watching him. Oh, Kevin's great. Yeah. yeah he's really fun. Um, see, the thing that's interesting is uh, something in Tin Cup that, you know, I wish I could see in tournaments every weekend is the golfer interacting with the caddy and that whole relationship and dynamic. I do, too. It would be great. Yeah, there's, just, there's so much conflict but, and drama there. They'd have to bleep yeah. a lot of the caddies. <laughs> Yeah, there are a lot of complications to doing that. But okay, so um, the role of feminism in the film. Tell me about it. Well, I just think it's such an interesting. You know, you, you, one of my favorite things about watching your films is the beginnings, right? Obviously, you and the audience all care much more deeply about the endings, but the beginnings are so clever. I find like they like like you know how sometimes you can start something and be like, I'm out. After a few minutes, like I never feel that way, and especially in Tin Cup, there's this there's this wonderful character introduced, like, and it's just you couldn't be more black and white, and it's just so clever. Like, how did the riddle come up? How does she walk in? It's so brilliant. Well, we it, it, it's much harder to find good openings than endings because is that true? Yeah, the end. If you've got the first two acts right, the ending writes itself. 
Third acts are easy if everything else is working. I wouldn't have guessed that. Yeah, get the get the. It's all the setup. <laughs> wow. And then the, and then turning and, and raising the stakes in the second act. If if but it, you keep going back when the script's not working to the first twenty five pages. Interesting. And um, I mean, I had you in Ten Cup. I had you in White Man Can't Jump. I had White you Man Can't Jump. And did you write all that? How did you come up with that fucking dialogue in White Man Can't Jump? <laughs> well, I played basketball. In high, no in, way. I, I, you I, wrote I, it. I played college and high school basketball. Even after Bull Durham, I was playing street ball in L.A. Nobody knew who I was. <laughs> I was a small college honorable mention All-American. I was just a white guy who could shoot. And now I was, you know, 40 years old. So wait, is I, well, I don't want to get too far into White Man Can't Jump, but. You, you, like, there is so much incredible African-American dialogue in the beginning of that scene. There's so much familiarity. I, I was watching it, and I was like, there's no way Ron wrote this. Well, you did. I, I did. I mean, I did. <laughs> we, well, we rehearse it. Look, at, we rehearse it. Uh, all that cast. A lot of those guys I knew um, from playing street ball. A lot of them played high school, college, and even some professional. A and lot of those guys weren't actors? A lot of or them were not actors. Wow. And... I said, "Look, we uh, let's play with this in rehearsal because I don't. On the day of, we're not. We got to have a be committed. Yeah. Which isn't to say you don't come up with something on the day, but you don't. You don't start every day without knowing it's jazz. You got to know the chord changes before you can improvise. Period. Interesting. And so we were all on book, and then and occasionally a." You know, Wesley would have a funny thing to say, and I'd right. say, do the script and then do yours. And sometimes the script won and sometimes his won. But most of it we worked out in rehearsal. Yeah. You had your marching orders more or less organized. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, but really, though, the, the riddle and then her answer to the riddle, that seems like a very large aha moment for the film. Yeah, you know, that riddle, which I thought had been around, I think it had been around, uh, it was just on some big television thing played it not that from the movie but that riddle like it was a brand new riddle about feminism and our preconceived notions written up in the New York Times or something like 20 years ago it was in the movie for, for those uh, people at home who haven't heard it can you can you tell us the riddle again no it was about the doctor who died and operated I get all confused you tell it okay from, from what I remember a man and his son get into a car accident and the and the ambulance comes and takes them to separate hospitals the son gets to the hospital and the doctor comes in and says I can't operate on this boy he's my son and, he's, and Kevin Costner's tapping the ball on his wedge, says, how is that possible? Huh. And his sort of cronies just sit there, and she walks in. Rene Russo walks in to, like, a, a breeze, you know? And she says, the doctor's a woman. Yeah. It's his mother. Yeah. And, I mean, I've heard it before. I've seen the movie before. <laughs> but I was still blown away at my own reaction to that. Yeah, none of the men get the joke they're telling. So. And you know, you know what my mom does? <clears throat> She's a doctor. Oh, look at that. That's your yeah. favorite movie. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess just... Uh, well, you came up with the idea of watching the Masters. You saw this guy lay up. You, you came up with this idea of a man who is constitutionally incapable of laying up. Yes, and that's both his strength and his weakness. I mean, it's a Greek... It's, a, it's, the, it's the underlying mythology of Greek tragedy. Your strength is your weakness. Really? Can strength you, is your weakness, yeah. Do you have other great examples of this to drive it home for me? Because I've never heard this before. Well, it's, it's like hubris. It's the thing that made you believe in yourself will also have you fly into the sun. Or the thing that, you know, I mean, the Achilles heel idea. The, um, nobody has everything. Huh. And um, his strength of boldness and taking 
risks and everything, it, 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 it seems to be, if it's such a strength, how can we still a driving range code have dumped in West Texas? <laughs> so what is yours? My what? Your strength and your weakness. Oh, God, there's so many. Save it for another <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I think one of the most interesting lines is uh, Cheech Marin's character who says something to the effect of, you know, you can win by just, you know, making par. Yeah. You know, that's such like an interesting metaphor for life that, you know, you can... Well, you, you sure can at the U.S. Open. <laughs> I mean, uh, at least in those days. Yeah, I mean, you have to choose your risks. We all have to take risks. But the, what's great about golf is it's a risk-reward game. And if I take the chance there and pull it off, I gain a shot on par. If I play safe, I probably don't uh, gain a shot on par. But if I take the risk shot and pull it left, I make triple bogey. So it's real clear that way. Almost, you know, on every hole on a good golf course, you have a risk-reward hmm. idea. And that's yeah. the, also the, uh, one of the great metaphors of golf. So you play at Bel Air? I play at Riviera. Riviera. Right. So I, got, second, I got in when it was affordable. Now nobody can afford it. Right, right, right. I'm trying to think of the equivalent shot. I mean, I guess <clears throat> number one. But anyway, do you do you find yourself? Well, two. Number two at Riviera is a monstrously long par four yeah. into the wind with the last hundred yards uphill. It's like 470. It's a par four and a half, really. Yeah. And I can't hit it out there anymore where I can get home very often. But even if I do get home, you're using a very long club, like a yeah. two hybrid or something at yeah. the most. And that takes a good drive in the wind. But the green is as wide as a G-string. So <laughs> if you miss it a little left, you're in a bunker about 14 feet deep. You sound like Gary McCord when you said that. Well, one of my best friends. So. He's a great addition to the film. Yeah. He's, uh, and I heard he had um, uh, quite a role in, in uh, the cast of the film as well. And we had trouble, you know, getting major golfers into it because they make so much for public appearances or to go play a corporate event for 25 grand and we were calling them up offering them you know six hundred dollars for one day and literally six hundred dollars yeah because that was scale for one day work amazing in uh, houston texas or, or tucson where we shot our south of tucson to start and gary said oh, i'll show you how to do this so he called all the wives up and sue stadler at the time chris uh, Craig Stadler's wife at the time was running the wives charity for the PGA Tour. And so I was there and he was in our office calling everybody. He'd say, hey, Sue, how would you like that? And then say, so basically, how would you like to have dinner with Kevin Costner? <laughs> sure. <laughs> hey, well, we'll fly you down there. We'll give you $600 a day anyway. So it's sort of like, oh, and you're going to give us $600? <laughs> and? <laughs> and to dinner right. with Costner? Brilliant. That's how we got the cast. We well, had four U.S. Open winners you were uh, going through agents probably originally. That's sort of... Yeah, we're dead. We're going to kill by agents. That's the lesson. Never go through an agent. Never yeah, go through an agent. That. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then... But then Phil came out on top financially in addition. He had his own little side game going. What, tell me that story. Well, you know, we... Phil... There was a bunch of guys who lived in Phoenix. Phil was one of them. And, of course, McCord and Costas. And there were some other players from Phoenix area who'd come down to Tucson to shoot. But in between camera moves because it's a little cumbersome outside to move stuff around they would go over and they'd, they'd have bets and he would hit that famous flop shot of his and it, it, he would hit it with a sand wedge over, straight up over a tree and then he'd sag into the same thing with an iron iron and an eight iron and you couldn't believe it he'd open it like that and he was just winning money like crazy and then 
Then they and then McCord says, "Show him that thing where you hit the ball out of the air." And I went, "No." And so McCord was hitting five irons, and Mickelson was trying to hit the ball out there with another five iron. Like, I mean, what are the odds? He never did, but you could just see him just missing. He so, was trying to hit a airborne golf ball out of the air with five irons. Oh. Then Mickelson turns around and he plays right-handed as beautifully as left-handed. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, what was the highlight? I'll, I'll tell you a funny oh. thing, though. They were, there was a, something, we were doing something on a putting green. I mean, you know, as, as if the tournament was going on. And in between setups, I didn't need Kevin, and so I was over shooting something else. And I looked back, and everybody was howling. And they were, they were betting like four-foot putts with a little bit of break in it. And Kevin, Kevin's a good athlete, good golfer. He wasn't a great putter. <clears throat> and they were just cleaning him out. They were... Fifty dollars, hundred dollars. You know the pros were taking. So I go over there, and Kevin's getting frustrated, and I had to have my star not frustrated. Right. So I said, Kevin, play the same putt for a million dollars. He goes, Oh, good idea. Oh, Ten thousand, twenty thousand. Right. They go, Oh. Suddenly the hole got bigger to him and shrunk to the other guys, and they Whoa. all bailed. That's a great golf story, isn't it? That, that is really interesting. Yeah, you bet on him for a million. You bet on them for a hundred. It's funny because I, I, reflecting on the story, it's like I'm thinking about like there's a lot of hustling going yeah. on yeah. in the story about the hustler. Right. Right? Yeah. It's funny because, um, you know, wh- I don't know when I'm, uh, I don't know, I just, I, I'm like clouded. There's so many great things. Did you, wh- what about the Masters this year? That was, that had some similarities. Truth is Stranger Than Fiction with well, Sergio. It, yeah. I and mean, this was Patrick Reed year, right? Yeah. Yeah, so Sergio's coming up on. Um, I actually, I was, I was there, so I don't really remember. I never saw it on TV, but it was thirteen or fifteen, and Sergio, I guess, had to lay up, and with his wedge, he kept getting on the green and zipping it off, and yeah. he made a ten. And those shots, to me, looked great. I mean, they didn't miss by. I, I couldn't believe. It. I mean, I, it's almost like it's an unfair green because he was he was hitting him three feet behind the hole, and. Yeah. and some balls were stopping and some weren't. It wasn't well, like he was mishitting shots. And that's what's interesting about the first shot of, uh, of, of um, Roy McAvoy's 18th is it's a perfect shot. Yeah. And everyone's like, you did it. Yeah. And then it just rolls off. What, what stands out for you? Because like, you, you play a lot of golf. How, how often do you play golf? Uh, once a week now. I used to play a lot more. When, when you're playing golf, are there ever moments where you're out there alone and, and you think about this story that you told? No, never. Thinking about the next shot. You don't. You, you don't think about. You don't think about Tim Cup. No, when I'm playing with a group, and if I don't go for it, they're all like, "Oh, you can, you come on, you gotta go for it." But that's like 280 off a cart path. I know. Come right. on, the guy that hit Tim Cup. Yeah. Did, so was I it, sort of have to go for it if there's anybody in the group. So I, I, I was watching the film, wondering if Kevin did actually hit all these shots. I did hear the story about how Kevin said. No stunt doubles. I'm doing it. He did every shot. But, but 18. I mean, that was... How long was that shot? Was it actually 230? Probably not. Like a, a little bit less, maybe? Yeah. But even still. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I just yeah, was... It was a par four dog leg. It was a long par four dog leg that we could play as a five because on camera it looked the same. Right. Was it actually the 18th of the course? No, it was the... It was at Deerwood Country Club. Um, it was somewhere on the back nine. Right. And the rest of that U.S. Open was played at Kingwood Country Club five minutes away. So Amazing. We, we just went over there for that one hole. 
uh, it, it was a perfect finishing hole. It seems to fit yeah. perfectly. Yeah, it was perfect. Yeah. Um, what was your experience like working with Jim Nance? Jim was a total pro. I, I, all those guys from CBS were great. And uh, Kenny was kind of at the last of his run, Venturi, yeah. but everybody else was great. Jimmy uh, Roberts there in the presser? Jimmy was in the presser, yeah. He was like, a ch- he was like eight years old. Yeah. That was, I saw him, and then I was like, is that Jimmy Roberts? And then, sure enough, in the credits. Yeah. Um, I, um, I, I, was, um, I got to meet Jim Nance this year at the Masters, and uh, I met him on Friday night. And Friday, I was there for Golf Digest doing uh, like a story for them. And when you're there as a member of the media, you get entered into this impossible opportunity, which is the lottery to play the Master, the Augusta on Monday. Right. And, um, you know, I, 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 was, I was picked. I was selected. And that night, I met, I saw Jim Nance walk by, and I just said, Jim, I just need to say hi. I would never normally do this, but I'm playing Augusta on Monday, and you mean the, you, you are more the Masters than anyone else, right? To say you're Mr. Masters is almost like that's obvious. So anyway, you have a story that's very similar that I want to hear. How did you hear this one? This is so painful. I do my research. This is the most painful story Jeff, I have. Did you, did you hear this story? It was on the uh, Rich Eisen show, I think. Oh, I yeah. probably told on yeah. Rich's so, show. <laughs> okay, this is the truth. Because of, by this time, I was very close to all the CBS guys. Frank Turkanian calls and says, guess what? We've got a spot for you in the Monday Media Day tournament. So I had gone down there to see the tournament anyway. It was the famous Faldo-Norman meltdown. Oh, that's right. Which I have stories about that, too. And he, um, so I'm down there, and I, I played like twice a day for six weeks getting ready. I mean, I had, <laughs> at one time, I was about a four. And I, this was as good as I, I played, and I was so sharp when I went down there. Yeah. And I could hardly sleep the night before Sunday. And the Masters was nothing next to what I was going to get. So you get out there, <laughs> and there's 100 guys, more or less, who are picked, or lottery or special. And we're warming up. I mean, I'm, in, I'm having breakfast there. You know, by the way, I did the stand-in in the Butler Cabin the day before with a green coat with, for Nance. You know. Amazing. So now I'm... <laughs> putting on those greens which are crazy fast and and it gets down to you know 64, 60, 56 it gets down to, by the time it gets to 12, 8, 4 you kind of know each other I'm the movie guy you're the on the driving range well, it's at the putting green which is right, oh. ne- right next to the first tee and it gets down to us so we're called over I go over and they're going you're the movie guy you go first and we so out of the corner of my eye I see some guy coming out of the main building right up to the first tee to the starter. I put the peg in the ground. I put the ball on it. I, I'm up back waggling. And the starter says, that's it, gentlemen. There'll be no more play today. They cut us off. Uh, we were the last foursome, and they decided to pull the plug. Uh, so I did tee it up at Masters <laughs> at Augusta, but I didn't hit it. What, what did Tricanian say when you told him? Well, he had, I did breakfast with him, and he'd gone on to the next wherever the next venue was. Right, he was on a plane. He was embarrassed, and oh. Nance, they were all, they felt terrible. And I called McCord, and he said, see how I feel? <laughs> that was after McCord had yeah, his. Yeah. So uh, McCord uh, announced at the Masters for many years, I think, right? Yeah. And at one year, he said, these greens are so slick, it's like they got bikini wax. Yeah, and, and they're they carrying, yanked him. Yeah. And they're None of that. carrying golfers off the 16th in yeah, body bags. Body that, bags. That didn't go over well at all. <laughs> It's too bad because McCord really is one of those golf personalities that I think golf needs more of. Yeah.
Hey, Sklar Brothers here, Randy and Jason, and we have a couple of podcasts. If you you know them or you don't know them, check them out. We do View from the Cheap Seats, which is sports and comedy, and we have a podcast called Dumb People Town where we break down stupid behavior done by stupid people in this stupid world of ours. It is hilarious. Check them both out. And now, check out this podcast. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, I was kind of just so inspired to hear um, what you had to say about what golf needs. I think you have a, a it's interesting because you're, here you remember at uh, one of the nicest courses in America, uh, one of the main stops on the PGA Tour, and you you and I completely identify uh, with anybody out there who's going to go wait in line to play Bethpage or or wherever. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, I I mean I grew up with you know twelve cents in my pocket and played golf now and then. Um, you know, when I moved to L.A., but it would be driving out to Brookside and Pasadena and standing in line at 5 in the morning and going to Griffith Park, which is a great layout by George Thomas. It just got 7,000 rounds a day on it, so yeah. it's not in great shape, but it's a great tra- a great design. Yeah. And it just kind of wore me out. And then there'd be six-and-a-half-hour rounds, and then I thought, i got to find a private club when I could afford it. And then I got invited to join Riviera by a couple members, so I jumped at it. And... Um, and every time I'm out there, I don't take it for granted. I mean, it's, it's about as good as it gets, and it, it's a great track. It never gets boring. Every hole's different. You remember every shot. It's fair. It's tough. And, um, with, you know, I play with my 13-year-old son now, and I say, you know, this, it isn't going to be like this forever. Right. You, so wait, we'll, you have a son that's 13? Yeah. That's incredible. How old are you? Um, 72. That's awesome. Yeah, he'll be 14 next Do you year. know Peter Weller? Yeah, but not well. I'm so saying, he, yeah. he and I, I'm a member of Wilshire, and, and his Peter Weller is an actor and a, and a right. doctor, apparently, right. and a teacher, uh, most famously the lead in RoboCop. Uh, Peter and I, sh- have, our lockers are right next to each other, and I think he is a little bit older than you, and he has a six-year-old. Well, hats off, Peter. Which, <laughs> which Maybe is, you should keep your hat on. Which is, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but did you have the experience before you joined Riv that you were like... Uh, you know, I had a fear when I joined Wilshire that I would get sick of playing the same course. I didn't because, first of all, I, I couldn't believe I, I could get into such a great, great course. And great courses don't get boring. Hmm. They really don't. And, you know, you can still play elsewhere. What do you find about golf here? You've been playing most of your life. You've devoted a lot of your free time to golf. What do you find about it that just is so uh, undefinable? Well, it's it's weirdly meditative in a way, and you know, I, I think with the possible exception of cooking, which I do not do, but with the possible exception of cooking, it's about the only thing you get exactly what you deserve. <laughs> yeah, that's really that's really crazy because I love cooking. There, and and so describe that a little more. Well, like, there's go no down. there's no pitcher. There's no you know uh. umpire. There's no bad calls. There's no yeah. You pick the ingredients and you and put nobody's them together. guarding you. Yeah. Cooking. Bowling. You, um, bowling really a sport. Well, I, I guess you do in bowling get exactly what you deserve, which is the experience of bowling. Just being endorsed for a very long time. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I guess in golf and in cooking, you're, you yourself are the opponent. You're facing off against yourself all the time. Yeah, it's always you against you, and I don't cook. It, um, I mean, I can throw something in the oven, but I'm not a cook. And but I think that's why people keep going back to it. You know, the great Irish expression, uh, someday I'd like to play my usual game. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that. 
Well, we all think we're better than we are. That's what I, th I like about it, too. You write a number down, and you post the number, and that's exactly who you were that day. Right. Um, you know, I always have this inner uh, sort of uh, question where I'm trying to figure out, and, and I think Jeff and I have talked about it a little bit, um, what's the most valuable part of a film? Is it directing? Is it writing? Or is it acting? And we uh, had um, Richard Schiff on the podcast recently, who's, um, you know, obviously from Toby from West Wing. And he, um, he was saying that, um, uh, that, that a, a great actor, that the hardest part, the, the hardest job an actor can have is to make a bad script great. Didn't he say that? Yeah. Turn, uh, you know, a, a yeah. crap dialogue into something and breathe life into right. it. But a great actor can do that. And, and that goes along with what this bigger question is, which is, you know, you've got these three people, right, that are necessary to make a film. You've got a director who's, you know, a lot of ways the way a producer used to be in the, in, yeah. the, in the early days of cinema. And then you've got, you know, this writer who's really got the idea. And then you've got this actor who, you know, because, like, I look at it, like, if you have a bad actor with a great script and a great director, goodbye. Mm. If you had a great script with a bad director and a great actor, goodbye. So in some ways, I don't want to admit it, but I feel like the actor's the most important part, even though I would really prefer to respect the writer and the director. Well, I don't, I don't think the actor's the most important because there's a lot of them. There's only one script, and a lot of directors would get it wrong. Uh. I mean, there's one piece of music, and there's a lot of ways you can conduct it and direct it and arrange it and perform it. So it sounds like the writing is the most important thing. For I you. think you can't go anywhere without the writing. Thank you. And, um, uh, the, and you know, some, why are some of our movies more successful than others? Because that curious balance, that weird synergy, that sort of ca capturing of lightning in a bottle is just not that easy. Sometimes you get it and sometimes you don't. And you can have everybody on the same page and actor committed and talented, but somehow... Why does the magic come and sometimes it comes, sometimes it doesn't, for me and for every other director. So, but you still have to start with the, it's on the page. When, when is the moment that that is revealed to you, whether the magic is present? Sometimes you know right early that you're going to have to overcome a casting problem and, in my case, revise the script as you go. <laughs> Did you do that on Tin Cup? No. Yeah, it didn't seem like it. No, we, 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 the cast was... Perfect. Tin Cup is one of these films for me that is like a, it's like a, you know, you, you turn it on and you realize it's two hours and ten minutes. That's the longest movie I've ever made. It's really long. By far. But what's funny is, like, like all good things in life, meals, relationships, it starts slow. And it just builds momentum. And then by the end, you, you uh, yeah, you want to slow it down, actually. It's about these guys, these, these three people, really. It's about... Cheech is the moral center of the movie as Romeo the Caddy. He's the, I mean, and that's the interesting thing about casting Cheech because, huh. I mean, he is. He's the guy that walks away when Crash's hubris huh. and madness comes in the way. That was a painful scene. Yeah. That was one of the most painful scenes yeah. as a golfer. And that's, you know, I, the, you know the history of that scene too, but I'll tell you if you don't. But, and, and Renee is trying to find her way and she's with the wrong guy and she's, she's got a skill set that doesn't in the wrong town. <laughs> and uh, I didn't even think about it that way. Yeah, yeah she's sort of a wellness clinic in Salome, Texas. Yeah, yeah. And, she's totally uh, metropolitan. Yeah. And but she's doing her best. Yeah. She's got her own shrink on the phone. Um, in her own way, she's gonna, you know, be really good for the community. It just nothing quite fits the way it's supposed to. And and you know, she sees everything in this guy 
who has completely imploded a career. And, um, you know, so that's, that's the magic. And I had the right three actors. And I had the great villain, Don Johnson, who was the yeah. perfect guy. Yeah, he was just able to conceal his sliminess for long enough. Yeah. It was really good. Yeah, so he was great, and he, he ate it up. He loved doing that. So, Do you think you could make White Man Can't Jump now? Oh, yeah, you could. You think so? No, no issue? Because of which issue? Racial? <laughs> racial? Yeah, it just, well, you know, like, I just look at the way things are changing. Like, clearly, I mean, you know, this is going to date this podcast, but Roseanne really, obviously has very messed up views, but you kind of wonder if, uh, you know, the immediate justice, justice that occurs in our population, would it, would it stand for potentially, um, I don't know. It just, it just occurred to me. I don't really have much of an yeah, education. I think what's under, underlying the question is the problem of political correctness, which all sides of the political spectrum agree on, and yet we do need some checks and balances that are self-imposed which is also called civilization and civility. And so how do you walk those lines? Well, they're not that hard to walk. You, you don't say, think, or believe what Roseanne did. But what I love about the playground is that it's democratic. It's very, you, you do show up, if you've got game, you'll play. Uh-huh. And nobody asks what's your background. Are you a lawyer and, or are you a you know, butcher? Or do you have a job? Are you unemployed? Right. Can you play? That's it. That's it. And what I also like about the playground is that how disputes are settled. Huh. You argue vociferously <laughs> and with humor and with complete profanity involving the other's mother, if possible. Relatives, yeah. Yeah. And then when everybody sort of stops laughing, somebody steps to the top of the key and shoots one shot. Whoa. And if it's good, basically you're right. All your moral arguments were right. It, 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 was, char- <laughs> it was a charge, not a block. On with the game. I mean, it's unbelievable like that. Once in a while, like Marcus Johnson, somebody goes to the glove compartment, comes out with a gun or a knife, but usually it's settled there, and life goes on. Right. And there's no partisanship. It's profanity, welcome, encouraged, and mandated. Solve it, get on with the game. I mean, I think the playground's one of the great (laughs) things about the country. That's really cool. I never thought of it that way, because I don't... You know, I was, I, I guess maybe one of the regrets of my life is that I was never really involved in, in uh, team sports. Like as a, as a young kid, I was, I played baseball, but I was like the catcher. So you kind of have your complete uh, uh, solo mission. Yeah. It's interesting that golf isn't really, for amateurs at least, a team sport. Well, watching the, on television the other night and my insomnia, the University of Arizona women beat the University of Alabama in the NCAA championship. Right. And they were, like, not ranked, and they barely made it, and, they, and Alabama's won. I watched that as well. It was actually one of the most enjoyable it was really golf exciting, experiences wasn't it? on TV I've seen in a long and time. And these young girls, yeah. women, I guess, it's not girls' golf, it's women's golf, but they went crazy. It was like Little League. They were jumping on each other. It was fabulous. And then the poor Alabama girls were all crying. Right. And, uh, I mean, maybe at that level it is emotional. And at the Writers' Cup it's emotional, though to me it's so nationalistic it's lost interest to me. I can hardly watch yeah. the Writers' Cup anymore. I wish it was just two teams. Rather, I, rather than two countries or two nations. And ban the flags from the event. There you go. That'll, that, would be, that would go down easy for... <laughs> but I agree. It, it, honestly, I don't watch it. It's so nationalistic and jingoistic and ugly. It's actually ugly. What it is just, jingoistic? I don't know what that is. 
it's sort of a politically, uh, uh, what a jingoism is a term probably from before you. Uh, <laughs> um, like um, political boosterism. Kind ah, of. I see. V- very partisan. Yeah. Yeah, well, I had this idea that they should do, because one of the Ryder Cup sad things for me is like, why can't Jason Day or Adam Scott play? Like, yeah. why don't we make it like a much more structured... That's the President's Cup, though. Yeah, but nobody watches that. I know, but... But they could, I'm thinking it'd be really cool to reformat it. In, anyway. They all live in Florida anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just have the Florida, the Florida challenge. Who came up with the seven iron challenge? I thought that was really interesting. Really, um, another great riddle. John and, I, John and I came up with that because there, there are these tournaments used to have them where you play a one club tournament and you know your local club would have one. I've never done it. I've always wanted to. John has. So it, it's an 18-hole tournament. You, you have one club. Oh my you god! You can pick whatever club you want, and I so, guess seven iron is the move. Well, that was what we thought. You can putt with it, but you can chip with it. You can hit it, you know, whatever, 160-ish. You can probably open it and get out of a trap. <laughs> um, I think I think guys tend to use three irons more, but I don't know how you get out of a trap with a three iron. But yeah, that sounds hard. Or, or like a short par three, I guess. Yeah, so anyway, we that came, our discussions of one-club tournaments led to that. But when I, I, I just felt like it was such an, another riddle when Don Johnson hits it on the road. Like, it's just like, oh, well, that guy uses his brain. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and it, it hopefully it made our hustler not a very good hustler. Right. When your hero hustler gets hustled yeah. kind of easily... You know, hopefully our heart goes out to him at the same time we're scratching our head and saying, oh, God, this guy will never do it. And then he comes 71 and a half holes from doing it. Well, what's funny is, um, you know, Kevin's character, uh, you know, he has an accent and it's not an intelligent accent. And, you know, he makes decisions that are, are obviously giving away the deed to the driving range. You know, he's sort of he's very emotional. And I think. That's what we all relate to, you know. Yeah. Is... It's a lazy accent is what it is because he's lazy. Ah. I mean, the character's lazy at the beginning of the story, and he's completely focused warrior in the last in the yeah. third act. He sleeps in his clothes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I found that so funny. Winnebago. <laughs> <laughs> I just think, you know, one of the things that I found very inspiring, actually, about the film was watching Roy be unapologetically himself at all times. You know, it's, it seemed like there were only a few moments of doubt, but even those, he was clear as to who he was and how he was going to do it, especially when tested. Yeah, that's right. No, I, I, I like the character, I, and I, we wanted to do a sequel, and we couldn't get Warner Brothers behind it. Which, what? Yeah, and it was going to be Cup, we were calling it Cup at the Q. He goes to Q school. Amazing. And... Um, and Warner Brothers was in turmoil. They changed leaders. And so John Normal and I kept that idea, and we wrote a Q-School script, which we think soon will be announced to be made later this year. So Whoa, about, really? About the way Q-School used to be, yeah. So it'll be a period piece? No. We're, we start by saying, this is the way it used to be, and this is the way it should be again. Amazing. And, <laughs> it, and it has a Kevin Costner character? or is It's a whole new character, but I, I can't say anything. I don't want to jinx the financing. But no. That's, but that came from... Our attempt to do a sequel to, because well, Q School is great, and the, and the way it used to be was great. I, I actually went to it a couple of times in Palm Springs, and you had uh, 
you know, uh, Lee Jansen was trying to get his card back. He had two U.S. Opens under his belt. He couldn't get his card. You had Anthony Kim when, when he, oh, when he yeah. qualified. He, had, he was playing. He, his family moved him to La Quinta at Palm Springs so that he could play every day the course that would be the Cusco qualifying course. That's why they moved the family. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. And he qualified. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, he's, he's so sad what happened to him. I mean, what a great. I heard his, his uh, <clears throat> I don't know if it's true. I heard this that recently that, that, that insurance thing he claimed, you know, he got yeah. his insurance. Not a lot of play. That, that it had a, a time limit on it and that he would be able to come back on the tour after a certain amount of time. Do you know that? I did hear that, but I, I think I also heard that he's not going to do it. I just, I don't know. I mean, how hard would that be? Well, I know, but ten million isn't going to last long. Yeah, honestly, I mean, if if do you pay taxes on that ten million? Did yeah, you blow it. I mean, because yeah. he was living high. Welcome to four million and moving on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what uh, um, the song? Well, Double Bogey Blues. There's about ten songs, all original for the movie. All, the all songs, original. All were written by those people. Yeah, because I noticed. Uh, what is it? it? Mickey Jones was Mickey the guy Jones who, who just Mickey Jones just died. Oh, no. Last month. Oh, no. He was such a happy character in the film. He was auditioning for the part that Dennis Berkeley, the late Dennis Berkeley, the big Earl, who was a great actor. Uh, But he passed away too recently. And then he wanted that part. So Earl, um, Dennis was in auditioning. And the door opened a little bit. And I said, who's out there? He said, that's fucking Mickey Jones. He wants my part. You can't let that son of a bitch out of the part. I said, you got a nice song. Ah, it sucks. I said, okay, you got that part. Let me see what he can do. So then I called him in and I said, I want your song. So wait, you had them, for the audition, you had them come in with a song that they wrote about golf? No, he just did. So I He just it. took it upon himself. Yeah. The Devil Bogey Blues. Yeah. That is good. Yeah. That's so good. I just want to like live in that movie. I, I'm sorry. I feel like maybe you're like, let's talk about something fun. else. No, we had fun. First of all, we shot it in Tucson, which I love. I went to graduate school in the University of Arizona, and I love that southern Arizona area. Mm. And we built our driving range. We had enough money, so we built that phony driving range down halfway to the Mexican, close to Mexican border, actually. Did you have to demolish it afterwards? Yeah, we had to restore mm. the whole area to a, an eco-perfect state, which, too which, bad. which is a good... No, it was... It was a beautiful old abandoned cafe that we built. Yeah. But we angled it just in a way so we knew that w- the four weeks we'd be there, that the sun was always coming at the right angle and yeah. stuff like that. So we, we had resources. And then we went to Houston to shoot the U.S. Open. Yeah. Yeah, Tucson's a wild town. I heard, I heard, that, uh, <laughs> I heard that some of the, some of the members of the cast, uh, well, how do you say it, had a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, there were a couple of uh, gentlemen's clubs that uh, hosted the the cast, at least <laughs> half the crew. Yeah, that's that's actually happens fifty two weeks a year on the PGA Tour. <laughs> yes, I know. We're not going to name names, though. Yeah, no idea. Um, anything? Well, anything? I think what's interesting is that um, you know all the films that you've made about individual sports: basketball, minor league baseball, golf. It's really about bringing the poetry to sports because I think we watch it on TV and we sometimes take for granted that there's a lot more behind it than what there is there. Does that? Yeah, that's the only thing that interests me. I mean, Sports Center is great, but it has nothing to do with what the sport is. And mm-hmm. that's why I try to tell them from my stories from the athlete's point of view, not from the fan's point of view, because the great plays are over in a half a second. 
Everything else is what's interesting. <laughs> yeah. What's going on in the locker room or at the hotel or the apartment or with your girlfriend or your wife or your caddy or your drinking There's so problems. many stories happening simultaneously. That's where the drama is. And so the guys in the dugout of a baseball game are watching an entirely different game than the fans and certainly a different one than the announcers are allowed to tell. I mean, well, look at the Masters. Look at, look at, look at this year with uh, um, who just won it. I just blanked on it. Reed. Patrick Reed. Reed. They were afraid to tell the story. <laughs> Because CBS was afraid to tell the story, understandably. Because then maybe Augusta National would mm. say, we don't want you to go there. So they're tiptoeing around a story, and everybody's online going, oh, my God, you <laughs> see the story? And everybody's on the phone. Yeah. And I got a lot of calls saying, why didn't Nance tell the story? I said, because he can't tell the story. No. You can't. That's not Nance's job. But you had to suggest something was different about this guy. You have to kind yeah. of read between the lines of uh, yeah. what's happening. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, 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 but Reed is an interesting guy. He's not always a likable guy, but he's certainly an interesting guy. Yeah. And some of the guys that are likable aren't nearly as likable for real as we know, you know, <laughs> as they come across. They're actors. They're performers. Yeah, like David Sims. David Sims. <laughs> <laughs> he, likes, he doesn't like old people and dogs and, you know. Yeah. Well, it's funny that David Sims wears a visor. Was that, uh, how did that inspiration come out? Um, well, when we made it, almost everyone was wearing visors. Visors, uh, visors disappeared because, you know, sun. <laughs> right. Receding hairline, yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what, what, is your, what does your day-to-day life look like? I write every day. Um, and part of the day is putting together production financing or casting or research on something else. You have a many projects going at one time. Uh, in addition, I'm a father and a husband and, you know, walk the dog now and then. And uh, uh, 13, almost 14-year-old son so, and daughter just leaving for college. I mean, it's very, very full. And your son loves golf or likes he, golf? He or? plays golf and baseball. Oh, that's great. Very good baseball player that's and great. golfer. And what kind of dog? Uh, Shaking his head. I'm just shaking my head. <laughs> Small dog. A, a yappy. It's just a, a jerk. Yeah, half the time. Yeah. I have a dog that's a jerk too. Yeah, but, yeah it's, uh, he has his moments. Yeah. I'm the I'm fourth you know, <laughs> in terms of of the who he respects in the house. I'm fourth out of four. Right. So, I mean, you have so much experience with Los Angeles. Can you talk a little bit about, like, um, you know, I've only been here for 10 years, and I romanticized the city so much, especially with films like Chinatown, L.A. Confidential. How, how do you kind of emotionally get in touch with L.A.? Well, I love Los Angeles. I mean, that is, I also love Chicago and New York and a lot of places, but... Where'd you come from? New Jersey, originally New York for 10 years. Where in New Jersey? Uh, a town called Madison in North Central. Okay. Small town. Well, near, right near Baltus Roll. Okay. No, I, I grew up in Southern California, and I love one of my big things is its history. I mean, going back into the 19th century, all through the Colonel Harrison Otis and the LA Times and Harry Chandler and Griffin Griffith, who shot his wife in the head and got off because... Alcoholic attorney Earl Rogers got him off. And this is the man who's credited for having the largest uh, city park in America, yeah, right? Yeah. Griffith. Shot his wife right between the eyes. Yeah. Uh, it, it's the most corrupt founding of a city. Any, I mean, nothing. Tammany Hall, nothing compares to L.A. We're trying to get a 
series, a mini-series off the ground about it. So I like the place. I like it because, I mean, there's one thing that you cannot like. The traffic is god-awful, and I don't think there'll ever be a solution to that. So you have to kind of invent your own L.A. around that. Which is why, smartly, we're in Santa Monica. How far was the commute for you? A few minutes. Good. Good. That makes me happy. At least I could do something in return for your well, time. And, uh, you know, we go downtown a lot, and we go a lot of places. You just have to choose your yeah. path. But it is... It's a tolerant city. It's a diverse city. It's a hard city, I think. I, I happen to love just the California climate, and not, not just climate, but topography. Hmm. There's desert, mountains, earth. There's Koreatown. There's that. There's, um, I, I, it is tolerant. I mean, if you look at, in general, California, you know, let's, let me get this right. We've got high taxes. We've got strict environmental regulations. We're kind of easy on immigration, and we've become the fifth economy in the world. What are we wow. doing? Wow. What know, are we doing wrong? Yeah, no. yeah, what are we doing wrong? Yeah, what are we doing wrong? <laughs> yeah, we need to fix traffic, which we'll never. We need to fix a lot of the poor public schools, which is an ongoing issue. And there's the homeless issue. Not so easy to fix when 33,000 homeless were found housing in the last 10 years, but they keep pouring in because all those other things I sold about L.A. So right. It's sort of an unsolvable problem. But... I do like California, and um, uh, which you know, maybe I've never been to Madison, New Jersey, though. <laughs> it's fine, but it snows a lot. Yeah. You know, you reminded me of the one of the first lines in Pretty Woman, which I, I kind of that era of films. You know, I just love like LA Story, and but in you know in Pretty Woman, the homeless guy is yeah. the one who proposes the idea that everyone comes to LA with a dream yeah. or Hollywood. Yeah. For me, there's something about that like moment sort of when it gets a little bit foggy and you just sort of see the town and you're like, so much has happened here and so many people have basically been on 18 and went for it. Yeah, and that's, for better or worse, that is the allure of this place and it's in the DNA of this place. And that goes back, what's interesting, when you look at the first quarter of the 20th century here, 1910, people were pouring off of buses coming here to buy a lot for $50. 1912, Chapel was making movies here already. Right. 1916, basically all the studios were formed yet. Um, Harry Culver was selling lots for, you know, 25 <laughs> bucks over here. I mean, you know, Clover Field. You know what's happening in Clover Field? Over in Do- Santa Monica. Donald mm-hmm. Douglas, there was a dirt landing strip, and Donald Douglas went to Harry Chandler, the LA Times, and said, I hear you own the land. Can you give me a deal on rent? Because I want to start something called the aviation business. Doug- Douglas no. Aircraft. Sadly, Whoa. they're tearing that down. Douglas Aircraft. Yeah. I know it. I'm against all that, and I don't even fly. Um, Martha Graham had a dance studio here in the teens, long before she went to, to, to New York. Uh, how about, um, who's the, uh, Amelia Earhart learned to fly here. I mean. At Santa Monica Airport or at, at Cloverfield? At, at, at Dominguez Airport, but this was one of the starting airports, yeah. Wow. And this is where the a- aviation began here. Aviation business began here. So it's all that stuff. Uh, it's wild and about about Southern California. Yeah. And I really love that everybody historically from San Francisco to New York always puts down Southern California. I love that. Just yeah, why don't we do that? Let them put it down and stay away. Stay in, <laughs> stay in New Jersey. Stay off the 10. <laughs> yeah. And pretty soon they come here and they start discovering all the things. Like, yeah. hey, I, I picked an orange for my breakfast. Yeah. Yeah. Attaboy. Don't have to shovel snow. Yeah, <laughs> one of these days you'll figure out how to change the oil in your car. Right. What, so, uh, what kind of car do you have? I have... Uh, a 
I have th- my, uh, two hybrids. Oh, cool. Um, my wife has a hybrid uh, little Toyota for the kids. Okay. A little SUV, and I have a the world's most uncool car that I love, <laughs> a Hyundai Sonata Hybrid. Oh, that's a good one, though. Hyundai makes a great car. Yeah, and I have a 20-year-old Ford pickup that I've had since it was no big old honker thing to haul stuff around. But no, I told my son, find me a good car. I don't want to spend any money right now. I'm not going to go off on location for another year. Right. Uh, I said, find it for me. I don't want to spend any money. And he says, I'm going to start with legroom in the back because he's in the back. Oh, smart. Next audio system. <laughs> smart. Then crash test. And then something yeah. else. He says, I got it there. And I went and I got it for like 200 bucks a month. And there you go. Your son could be a good uh, oh, producer. Yeah. All be, we'll all be working for him soon. We, uh, I, I just think, well, what kind of car do you have? It's such an L.A. question. I love, I, love, uh, I love knowing it. I have an electric car, not, not a fancy one, but I do find that. I, do, I find the future of things so interesting. And L.A. doesn't seem to be, of all the places in America, it seems like L.A. is sort of, Am I right about it? Like, it seems like it's less concerned with the future than other places. You know, it's much more like present, like, or, or even past. I don't know. Well, I don't think it pays attention to its past. That's why I joined the LA Conservancy to preserve some of its past. Long really? Ago. But, what do you do there? Well, you basically make sure they don't tear down too many old buildings. Well, it's very sad. Uh, Dupars in the Valley just got torn down. Oh, no. Very I've, famous. I've fought of I've marched for, you know, the McDonald's and Downey and... No, I'm a big architecture nut. So, um, yeah, there's another big one about to go somewhere. And I hated that the LA Air- the Santa Monica Airport is going to get closed. That's a- what, what are some of your favorite buildings around LA that someone could check out? Well, you've got all the Richard Neutra stuff in the Silver Lake area, that modernist sort of 30s, 40s clean line stuff. There's a ton of Neutra. There's, uh, Aaron, uh, there's uh, Irving Gill buildings. Um, they're great. You've got a lot of the whole bungalow thing. Right. And then the whole George Washington Smith uh, colonial Spanish California version, <laughs> which is its uh, own sub, you know, when you think of California Spanish, it's actually its own thing. Really? Yeah. Like, yeah. The, like, the, like the house from um, Double Indemnity? Yeah, all those. Yeah. yeah. That's it. That's a, a lot of those were designed by Hollywood set decorators, you know. No way. Yeah. And there's a whole bunch of hidden deco buildings in this town. It, just the fact that, you know, there can be a Google architect, Google architecture next to a high rise. I, I right. just love that. And, uh, it's, to think of a house designed by a Hollywood set decorator, that is just perfectly defines L.A. for me. There's one up here, not far up in the Santa Monica Canyon off on Kingman Road, designed by a famous production designer for it was a great director, and I can't remember, but his... His mistress, it was like Dolores Del Rio, he was having an affair with her. So he basically had his art department go design this house. It's one of the great houses I've ever been at. Yeah. I guess he was really had a lot of feelings for her. <laughs> <laughs> and what it's off this just off the sixth hole at Riviera too, by the way. So uh, Oh, I uh, with the the hole with the uh, the bunker in the middle? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is the house with the large concrete wall or to the right? It's it's to the right. I mean, ah. I'm thinking of the house that look, looks like a looks like the Getty straight straight back. No, it's loop around. It's it, ah. it, you don't get the full picture of it from the front, but I did a photo shoot there once, and it was like, oh my god. So, what do you think? Um, you know, you, you love Hollywood, you love films, you love golf, you love being. Well, I don't love the business of Hollywood. Nobody likes the business of Hollywood. I like making movies. But even now, you're 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 standing on your surfboard. You're fine. The waters are calm, aren't they? Never calm. Don't believe in calm water. So you got to be churning in a 
What's next? What's next? That's all it's about. Um, but but what, 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 what have you learned that you think that's the most poignant thing of, of your wonderful career? Honest to God, I'm, I'm still learning. I mean, it's, it's a, you know, the, all the cliches are true. <laughs> you know, it's a, tri- it's, it's a marathon, not a sprint. It's actually a triple triathlon, not a sprint. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think all the cliches, you know, trust yourself, trust your instincts. I, I think the people you're in business with are just as important as the project. <laughs> right. Good projects can get messed up by bad people. And so, you, you know, and, and never, never, ever stop. Keep putting one foot in front of the other. Right. Despite, did you ever suffer any major failures? I've had movies bomb, um, but those aren't. You know, you get over those as yeah. long as you can get to your next movie. <laughs> as long as you get another ticket. Yeah. Um, what about? Yeah, I mean, you kind of answered it, but I was going to ask if you had any, you know, advice for people. Uh, not necessarily Hollywood advice, but just sort of like creative advice. Well, don't get too high and don't get too low. That's the great. That's the great message from sports from being an athlete you know you you'll five for five one day and then you go over 14 <laughs> you've gotten 200 again or you go over 14 you might go 10 for 10 or you <clears throat> you have a hit you're gonna make two bombs you may have two bombs you know and and it, one for all one's passion you just can't ever believe the press clippings one way or another because you got to believe them when they hate you if you're going to believe them when they love you right and um, so just, you know, stay true to who you are and what you don't try to become somebody else. I couldn't do If they gave me a trillion dollars to write a, the next Marvel movie, I wouldn't know how to do it. I, I just wouldn't. I'd want to make it too ironic, too funny, too layered. Too, I, wouldn't, I would be the worst, you know. So um, I do what I do. Hmm. Well, we're all really grateful for it. Well, thank you. The Tin Cup Visor. Do you have one? No. Tin Cup Fan Club. <coughs> no. I've tried to find one. I can't get it. I, I did. They did a really poor job. They didn't realize that there was a lot of merchandising could have happened on that movie. They didn't get it. And um, I'm actually still where I play golf Monday in Ojai, and I, and I pulled a golf shirt out of my closet, and it was the whatever the <laughs> golf shirts were we made for the U.S. Open in. Amazing. Or for whatever the marshals were wearing, it had our own logo on it. So that was 22 years old. Just in your car? It, yeah, it was in my closet. Oh. What's that? Oh yeah, that was that movie we made back. That's <laughs> that movie. Yeah, that's so. great. Anything, Jeff? Uh, well, I really enjoyed the ESPN documentary you made, Jordan Rides the Bus. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we yeah. had. That was year one of 3030. Yeah, that was the very beginning of that whole series. Yeah, they were, were trying to figure out what to do, and I said, well, because this, this was only 15 years after it happened. I, did Michael Jordan really quit basketball after three straight titles and go play minor league baseball for a year? That, <laughs> did I dream that? I'm pretty sure that didn't actually happen, but it did. <laughs> and then I went, it did happen, didn't it? And um, Because when it happened, I don't know what I was doing at the time. I was like, what is he doing? Was he? But So I went back and investigated that, because a lot of people thought he left because of gambling or he left because of this. And it was very clear, and the, and the documentary points out, he left because his father had died, been killed, because he just won three in a row. There were no heights to scale. He was a prisoner of his own celebrity, couldn't go out in public. I mean, he couldn't leave a hotel. You know, he had a big fancy restaurant in Chicago. His dad was the, was the host because he gave his dad something to do, and he didn't have to ever be there. Right. And, um, and so he 
<clears throat> wanted to try something new and a new challenge, and he had been a high school baseball player, and his father always wanted him to be a baseball player. So now that he's lost his father, a man who could do anything who says, I want to play professional baseball. And at the time, I sort of mocked him, and then when I went back and examined it, he was way better than he had any right to be. Uh, um, and uh, Terry Francona was his manager in Birmingham. We went down to Birmingham, and Francona will probably be a Hall of Fame manager now. And everybody said, you can't believe how bad he was in April and how good he was in September. And that's, he was 31 years old. He hadn't touched a baseball since he was 17. And he was playing in double A. And so I revised my view of, of that part of his life. And then he came back, and he won three titles in a row again. <laughs> Basketball. <laughs> so I mean, incredible. Yeah. It's fascinating because you, know, you, you think of a story one way based on how the press views it, and then you kind of dig deeper, and you realize that that's completely... Well, I interviewed Steve Kerr yeah. on it because Steve was on the second group of three. And he said, went down to his place in Rancho Santa Fe, and he said, Michael Jordan left basketball because he wanted to. The NBA was begging him to stay. He was the cash cow. He had made it an international sport. He could write his ticket. It did nothing to do with gambling. It's not against the law to gamble. It's just against the law to gamble on your own sport. And there was no evidence or suggestion that Jordan never did that. It was a completely uh, bogus, it was fake news before we knew what that meant. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, and, and Sports Illustrated writers who ripped him came back and rebutted and said they were wrong. And so it was nice to set the record straight. Yeah. Any questions for us, Ron? <laughs> no, just where do I stay and where do I eat in Madison, New Jersey? Madison, uh, well, it was a uh, it was um, mostly populated originally by uh, Italian immigrants. It's called the Rose City, so we uh, have a lot of florists, and so the Italian food is really good. Okay, there was about seven pizzerias in a town of fifteen thousand. Okay, and after school every day, we would go to one and just eat a cheese slice of pizza every day. So. I'll book it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, do you like to travel? I do. Yeah, where where where's on travel, your list? I don't travel much with the family right now. Yeah, it's too hard. It's pretty hard. Yeah, it's hard for me to travel, and I just have a ten-pound dog. Well, <laughs> I travel to get away from my ten-pound. <laughs> right. Well, I really appreciate it. Um, I hope that uh, I hope that the 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 future of. Uh, the Legend of Tin Cup lives on, both in what many consider to be the greatest golf films ever made. And I certainly, you know, when I, when I watch other films, you know, there's only a handful of them, right? Caddyshack, Happy Gilmore. They're all great, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're funny and they're entertaining, but none of them are going to get you like this one. Th this one is the movie that actually goes into the foundation of why we watch movies, which I, which I just, uh, you know, I, I'm really grateful to have the chance to talk about it. Well, I hope to get you again on my Q School movie. <laughs> uh, we'll book the podcast right now. We'll, we'll be... <laughs> Thanks, Ron. Thank you. Thanks.